Okay. Now, in the room behind me, we have a mirror. And it is the best mirror I have ever seen. Because when you stand in front of it, you are tall and slender. And I'm telling you, everybody needs this mirror in their house, at their office, in their car, wherever they go. Because this mirror lies to you. <laughs> it tells you you look better than you really do. And that's really what we want, isn't it? We want to look better than we actually look. That's why we put filters on our Instagram posts. We want everybody to think we're more beautiful and better looking than we are. But I have some bad news for us. The mirror of the word does not lie. It reveals us, it shows us exactly as we are. But it's not to hurt our feelings. It's not to bring harm to us. The mirror of the word is revealing our true selves to us for our good. Just like an MRI or an ultrasound or a mammogram is there to reveal what's in there so that we can get it fixed or cured or taken care of. The mirror of the word is revealing the true nature of our hearts so that we can be changed by the gospel, changed by the God who is revealing to us our sinful nature. James 1 verse 25 says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doings. And so we're going to be looking into the mirror of the word tonight. Let's begin by praying and asking that the Lord would change us through our gaze into his book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the word of God, for your word to us. We thank you that it is a mirror that exposes the state of our hearts. And we know that you're doing this for our good. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your word that you would help us to be humble, to be open, to be receptive to your word. I pray that we would, um, by the power of your spirit, be submissive to your word. And whatever we are convicted by, that we would walk in obedience and be changed by your word. And Lord, I pray that you would be with me. I ask that you would help my mind to be clear. I ask that my lips would be faithful to you and to the meaning of your word. And I just pray that you would bless our time. I pray that it would be a fruitful time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in Deuteronomy 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel. That is a phrase that we have heard quite a bit in this book, has it not? Hear, O Israel. It's that call to attention. It's, it's the call to listen and to obey. Hear, O Israel, all of Israel. There's no exceptions. None. Not the children, not the women, not the, the outcasts, not the outside. Hear, O Israel. Anyone who identifies as Israel is being called to direct all of their attention to what Moses is about to say. Because it is of the utmost importance. Hear, O Israel. You are to cross over the Jordan today. 
<clears throat> to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? All right, so in verses 1 and 2, we have almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy 1, verse 28, in the description of the land that they are going to enter. And what we need to understand is this land is equally as terrifying and formidable as it was 40 years previous when their parents were poised in the same place that they were, ready to go across into the land. The people that are there are still greater and taller than they are. Their cities are still cities that were great and fortified all the way up to heaven. And the sons of the Anakin still live there. Nothing had changed in the 40 years. All the reasons that were given for their rebellion were still in place on this day. And now this generation, facing the exact same giants, were facing the exact same choice that their parents faced 40 years previous. Would they obey, trust and obey God? God had said he would give them this land. Or would they disbelieve God and disobey him? Moses has been doing everything in his power in this sermon to prepare and equip this generation to be different from their parents. Right? He has been... He has been encouraging them and giving them all the reasons why they should trust and obey rather than rebel. He reminded them of God's faithfulness in this, their history, and he's continuing to do it again in this lesson. Verse 3 says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Know therefore today, what are they being called to know today on this day? They're being called to know God. They need to know who he is. They need to know who, what he has done. They need to know what he has promised to do. They need to know that he is their God. He is the consuming fire who goes before them, who will drive them out. They need to know this God because it is crucial for them to step forward in obedience that they know God. We will not trust and obey a God we do not know. That's our problem. That's all of our problems. The less we know about God, the, the less we are able to trust him, to trust that he is good, to trust that he is for our good, to trust that he is faithful to his promises, and to act in accordance with that. And so Moses is continually reminding them, know him, know your God. And he reminds them specifically of who he is. This has been Moses' emphasis throughout all of Deuteronomy, but really, he has written Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers as well to this generation so that they might know God from the creation to this moment in history where they are. 
And this is true, this is a word for us today. We don't just have the first five books, we have the whole counsel of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We have so much more that we can learn and know about God than this generation had. And the more the effort that we put into knowing him, Submitting to him under the spirit, with the spirit of God, revealing him to us, the more we will grow in our abilities to walk in obedience, to walk in trust in our God. It is important for us to know today who our God is. And in light of who God is and what he has been doing in history and for his people, verse 4 continues on and says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, after he's done what he said he was going to do, don't say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Is that not just like all of us to do exactly what he's warning them not to do? Is that not like all of us? The pride that lies deep within our hearts rises up when things go our way. And somehow we think that we have what we have because there is something good in us. There is something wonderful in us. I was thinking about this this week. We're, we're stealing the credit from God, the glory from God, when we think about ourselves and our marriages. Or we, we may say things like, oh, I'm just so, so thankful I have such a good marriage. It's, I have worked so hard for this marriage. It's because we worked hard. And we've done all the things, and we pray together every night. And we're stealing very subtly the glory from God. Or we might say, I'm wise because I've studied so hard. I've worked so hard. I read the scriptures. And so I'm wise because of my work, my effort, what I have done. Or have money in the bank. It's because I'm a good steward. And I've been tithing faithfully all my life. These are subtle ways where we have received the blessings of God that have been given to us in his grace and his mercy. And we try to take credit for that. We're just like the people of Israel. And God says through his word, don't think. Don't think it's because of your righteousness that you have all this. Verse five continues on. It says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Know therefore today. He called them to know therefore who their God is. And now he's saying know therefore yourself truly. It is not because of who you are that you are receiving. It is because 
who God is. The Lord God has given you this land. It is a call to know themselves well. He says it three times in the text. It is be, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of any uprightness in you. It is not because you've been a wonderful people. It's not that God looked down from heaven on the people of Israel and saw them and said, Oh, what a delightful group of people they are. I think I will pick them to be my beloved people. Look at them. They're so beautiful. This is not what it is. This is the Lord saying, no, that is not what it is. Three times he says this. And when the Bible repeats like that, it is emphasizing something to us. It wants us to stop and pay attention. Just like in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah goes before the Lord and he sees the Lord and he says, holy, holy, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. We are meant to understand that there is an exclamation mark, all capitals, underlined three times to this holiness of God. God is not just holy. He is not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. His holiness is indescribable, incomprehensible. That's what it means when we see it three times, that the Lord is, is ex exclaiming something with bold letters so that we can see that this is more than we could ever comprehend. And so in this passage, we have three times, again, it's almost like instead of holy, 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 we are hearing unrighteous, unrighteous, unrighteous. It is incomprehensible how unrighteous you are. And I'm struck by the bluntness of these passages of Scripture. It's almost as if the Lord knows the hearts of people and our tendency to see ourselves as better than we are. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Bible is the only book in the world, the only book in the world that tells me the truth about myself. Isn't that right? Go to a bookstore and you will find books that are going to tell you, you are smart, you're beautiful, you're an overcomer, you're amazing, right? All this building up the self-esteem that we crave with all of our hearts. And the Lord is not overly concerned with building up our self-esteem. He is concerned with building up our God-esteem. It is so difficult so many times, so many, because the Bible is the only book that tells me the truth about myself, this is why so many of us have a very difficult time with the Bible. We want that mirror that's in that back room over there that makes me look better than I am. That's what we're longing for, that's what we're craving to hear. And that's why so many of us have a very difficult time with the Bible, because the Bible tells us, reveals to us what we truly are, exposes our sin. And if the Bible did not do that, we would walk through life oblivious to our sinful nature, because that is what our sinful nature does. It's normal to us. We don't think we're that bad. 
we don't realize that we have sin in our hearts. We, we compare ourselves to the people who are worse than us, and we think we're pretty good. Without God's word saying unrighteous, don't think that it's because of anything you've done. Without God's word exposing us to our sinful nature, we would be blind to it all the days of our lives. And we would never know the truth about ourselves. And on top of that, because we would never see our need we would, for grace, we would never be able to see and appreciate and understand the God of grace who is offering grace to us. And so through his word, God is exposing our sinful natures. It is the grace of God that does that. It is his grace that exposes us and truly, truly humbles us. The great hymn writer John Newton penned the words to Amazing Grace. Everybody loves this song. Everybody knows this song. But my favorite verse in the Amazing Grace is the second verse, which says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." That's what God does when he exposes our sin. He exposes our sin, and in this chapter, we see he exposes his response to our sin. And that teaches our hearts to fear. But then grace comes in and relieves our fear. Grace that taught my heart to fear. This is the grace of God being poured out on Israel in chapter 9. In blunt truthfulness, he lays open their hearts and exposes not only their lack of righteousness, but the fact that they were stubborn and rebellious people. People who provoked the Lord to wrath. So what does it mean to be stubborn and rebellious? Well, stubbornness, the word stubborn defines is having or showing dogged determination. See if you recognize yourself in this. Not to change one's attitude or position on something, especially in spite of good arguments or reasons to do so. A dogged determination not to change your disposition or your attitude or your mind. And rebelliousness is showing a desire to resist authority, control, or convention. And they are, he's exposing that they are a stubborn and rebellious people. Verse 7 says, remember and do not forget. How often have we heard that phrase too? Remember and do not forget. Remember and do not forget. But most of the time we were remembering and do not forget who the Lord is, what the Lord has done, right? We're to rehearse that, to remember that, and not forget it. Because when we, when we forget God, we move towards idolatry. So we've been repeatedly called to remember and do not forget. But we're not being called to remember and not forget the Lord in this case. He's calling us to remember and not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. From the day you came out of Egypt, basically from the day you were born, from the moment you came into this world, from the moment you were born, you have been a rebellious people against the Lord. Remember and don't forget this. He's calling them to remember and not forget two things. One, their sin. Don't forget the true state of your heart, your sin. And two, what sin deserves. It deserves destruction. 
Notice also that he says, remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God. You. I would like to point out once again that the events that Moses calls them to remember and not forget happen to their parents. And yet here we are in this sermon, and Moses is very direct, directly saying, you did this. You are the ones. Remember how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath. Remember how you did this in the wilderness. Remember how you did this at Horeb. Remember how you did this. But it wasn't them, was it? Some of them hadn't even been born yet. And it's not that, God, that Moses is saying that they are being condemned for their parents' sin. But in reality, this generation of Israel, this second generation, has the same sin residing in their hearts that their parents did. That sin of stubbornness and rebellion is the sin of their hearts. It is the same sin that lies in the heart of every single subsequent generation of Israel that would grow up hearing these words, reading these words of Moses. It is the same sin that lies in the hearts of each one of us in this room today. You, the word you, is a call to see yourself at Horeb, at Taborah, and in all of these examples. In this sermon, Moses is calling all listeners, all of his listeners, hear, O Israel, and see yourself truly, and repent. He says, remember and do not forget your unrighteousness and what your unrighteousness deserves. And then he provides for them five very specific examples to prove that they are unrighteous. And he begins with Horeb. Even at Horeb, verse 8 says, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Even at Horeb, the first example that he gives The longest example that he gives in this chapter is Horeb. Do you remember Horeb? We've talked a lot about Horeb. I'm going to skim through this chapter, the the events of Horeb. But do you remember Horeb? A couple weeks ago, how the people had stood at the mountain. We rehearsed this, and, and they saw the consuming fire of God descend upon the mountain. They heard with their own ears the voice of God speaking the 10 words to them. And you remember how they were terrified by this. They were terrified by what they heard and what they saw, and they couldn't believe that they were still alive being in the presence of God. And so they say, Moses, you go. You go up into the mountain. You go into the presence of God. Listen to what he says. Come back and tell us, and then we will be careful to do everything that the Lord God commands. Remember that? That's Horeb. That's what happened at Horeb. And you remember how the Lord responded when, he heard, when, when they said this? He responded and he said, oh, that my people would be like this always. He said that because he knew. Because the Lord knows everything, right? He knew exactly what was about to happen. So Moses goes up to the mountain and, and he's with the Lord. He's in the presence of the Lord for that 40-day period, fasting and listening to the word of the Lord. And almost as soon as Moses is up in the mountain, 
they forgot God. With the fire still burning in their eyesight and the voice of the Lord ringing in their ears, they went out and made a golden calf. And they had a huge celebratory event where they worshiped this golden calf as if this golden calf was Yahweh himself. The one who had rescued them. The one who had redeemed them. The one with his mighty hand and an outstretched arm had released them from Pharaoh. The seriousness of this sin is so vivid in this description, in, the, in these verses. As Moses retells these events, it provoked the Lord to wrath. He was ready to destroy them. They had acted corruptly, we are told. They turned aside quickly. They're stubborn. They sinned against the Lord. They shattered the covenant with their sinfulness, with their idolatry. They shattered the covenant before the words could even be written on the tablets of stone. That's how quickly they forgot God. And Moses, in response, was to shatter the tablets that the covenant was written on as a visible picture of what they had done with their lives. They had done this in reality when they worshiped this God. It was a shattering of this relationship between them and God and the covenant that, and, the, and the commandments that the, the tablets were representing. Even as we studied these verses this past week that told the story of Horeb, we can feel the tension in these passages. There is a fear that kind of creeps into my heart as I see God's response to their rebellion, as I read about his wrath. He was so angry, verse 8 says, that he was ready to destroy them. And this is God's response to sin. The wages of sin is death. It is a right response. It is righteous anger. In Deuteronomy 9.3, Moses said, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. God is a consuming fire. It is who he is, for he is perfect in holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His holiness is why he is a consuming fire, consuming all that is unholy. In revealing himself through fire on the mountain of Horeb, God is revealing his holiness to his people, his holy presence to them. It is in the face of his holy presence that this people rebelled against him. They did not offer the Lord acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for he is a consuming fire, but rather they offered the Lord unacceptable worship. And it is right that God would be provoked to wrath. And it is right that they would be destroyed. And while we may look at this example of Horeb and the golden calf incident and say, I never did that. I've never made a golden calf. Or I've never worshipped another idol or worshipped God as an object. The truth of the matter is what scripture teaches us 
is that every single time we break any of the commandments, we have shattered the covenant. Every time we sin, it's a sin against the Lord. And we are doing the same thing that Israel did in Horeb. We are shattering the covenant for every sin finds its root in idolatry. If we break any of the commandments, it is only because we have already broken the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. We are not off the hook. We too are at Horeb. Remember what you did at Horeb. The reminder of Horeb and the sin of idolatry should be enough to convince anyone that it is not because of any righteousness in them that the Lord is blessing them. But the Lord continues through Moses to peel away any pride that could possibly remain in them. Jump down in your Bibles to verse 22. We're going to skip down to verse 22 and pick up our text there. Verse 22 says, At Taborah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take the possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. At Tabera also. So what happened to Tabera? That was found in Numbers 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them, consumed some outlying parts of the camp. That is troubling. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. They didn't complain to the Lord. They didn't bring their grievances to the Lord in a lament like we see in the Psalms. They complained about the Lord to their peers or complained about their misfortunes to their peers. In Massa, it's a similar story, and that's found in Exodus 17, where the people were in the wilderness and they were thirsty. And it says that they tested the Lord. And in the testing of the Lord, they asked, is the Lord among us or not? They were thirsty and did not believe that the Lord was being good to them, that he would not provide for them. And this was in the face of of God's provision of manna. He had just begun to provide for them the daily bread from heaven. And they turned around and said, the Lord is not good to us. We're thirsty. He's not going to provide for us. And they tested him, not believing that he would continue to provide for them. Kibroth Hatava We also find that story in Numbers 11. The word means the grave of the craving. Numbers 11 says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Think about what it is they're saying. 
They're saying, we remember how it was in Egypt, and it was better in Egypt under the Pharaoh than it is at the table of the Lord under the rulership of God himself, who has been so good to them. We want to go back to slavery. God is not good to us. He is not providing for us. It was better in Egypt. Do you remember the cucumbers, the leeks? Guys, do you remember the story of Egypt? It's amazing how time changes what our, our view of the past events. <laughs> when we read in Exodus 1 about what the life was like for the people of Israel in Egypt, it was very unpleasant. The Pharaoh was cruel to them, abusive, impossible to please. They were slaves with no hope, and God had redeemed them, and now they're saying, because of my cravings, I want to go back. And then we know the story of Kadesh Barnea, the story when they were standing at the border, and they did not believe, did not trust in the goodness of God that he would be faithful to his promises and deliver their enemies into their hands. And so they disobeyed. These events, Horeb, Tabera, Massa, Kibrath Hatava, Kadesh Barnea, all these moments, all these events are evidences of the unrighteousness that lay within their hearts. They were stubborn in spite of all that God had done for them, they refused to change their disposition towards God. And they were stubborn, bitterly complaining against him. And it's almost like when you look through all of these occasions, their bitterness in their heart towards God was because God had not met their expectations. Is that not right? God had not met their expectations. He had not provided for them in the way that they thought he should provide for them. He had not done what they thought he should do for them. And because God was not meeting their expectations, they were complaining about their misfortunes. They were bitterly complaining and testing God and doubting his goodness and that attitude that was in their hearts is an attitude that stirred up the wrath of God against them. But the problem is this attitude lies deep within every human heart. This is true about all of us. We can neither deny it or explain it away. We all are a rebellious, stubborn people from the day we were born. And this stubborn and rebel stubbornness and rebellion is deserving of God's judgment. Listen to what the Lord said in Mos to Moses, and we're going to go back up, so we're jumping around a little bit, into Deuteronomy 9, verse 13. Look in your Bibles at 9, verse 13, and what the Lord said to Moses. And this is at Horeb. He said, furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from heaven. 
Whenever scripture says that, blot out their name from heaven, it is speaking of wicked people. Wicked people will have their names blotted out from under heaven. And he's saying that about the people of Israel because of the sin that's in their heart. And I will make a nation of you greater and mightier than they are. So the Lord is seeing the people and he sees their stubbornness and their rebellion and he tells Moses, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy them. These are shocking words. Again, the Lord is not concerned about making people feel comfortable right now. These are hard words to hear and they're hard words to hear because we have to be able to see ourselves in this chapter. We have to be able to see that this is our heart and this is God's response to sin. When we are complaining because God hasn't met our expectations, and we talked about this in our small group upstairs, there was a sense in which, you know, it's normal for us to complain about our misfortune. It feels normal. We're just venting, right? And we never, I never think about what God thinks about my complaining. Never. Not once do I think about it. And yet here, we're given insight into that. Because of their attitude, he is seeking to destroy them. And this is what stubborn, rebellious people deserve. We are looking in the face of what you and I and every human being deserve. This is the wages of sin. To be utterly destroyed and have our names blotted out from under heaven. Aren't you guys glad you came tonight? good news, right? No, it's bad news. You see, we need to hear the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. We need to see ourselves in this place before we can understand the grace that is to come. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, but it was also grace that relieved my fears. What does Moses do? Does Moses go away like the Lord said? No, Moses, in this amazing and beautiful picture, steps toward God's wrath. He steps towards God, and he stands between God's wrath and God's people. Moses draws near to God, and he begins to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel, and he intercedes for his brother Aaron, who has led the people into idolatry. Verse 25 says, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said said that he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, Oh God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to do this, to bring them into the land that he promised. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. What a beautiful prayer. What beautiful insight into the prayer of a righteous man we get in this picture. First, I want to look at the posture of Moses. His posture is one of absolute humiliation. 
He is on his face before the Lord God. Moses is a great man. He, there is no greater man in Israel's history than Moses. Of no other leader in, in history was, was like Moses that was face to face with God, as a friend is. And yet here Moses is on his face, not as an equal by any stretch of the imagination, but as one who is utterly humbled in the presence of God, utterly dependent on God for everything, including life and sustenance. This man has been fasting for 40 days, and now he's on his second 40-day fast. I do not know how you do that. I can't even do 24 hours without getting really crabby. He is utterly dependent on the Lord for nourishment, spiritual nourishment that seems to go into his physical body somehow. It's a posture of humility, and it's a posture of dependence. Now let's look at what he says. His prayer for mercy is not dependent on him, on himself, it's not dependent on the people. He roots his prayer for mercy on the Lord God himself, on God's character. Oh, Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He roots it, his prayer, in God's character and in God's promises. Remember your servants. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know when God is called, when we, God says, I remember, it's not, he's not remembering because he's forgotten something. He's remembering to act. So Moses is saying, act on the promises that you made to Abraham and not on the stubbornness of your people. So he roots his prayer for mercy on God's character on God's promises and on the covenant, for they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And ultimately, he roots his prayer for mercy on God's glory. Moses is concerned for the glory of God in the nations. This is what the prayer of a righteous man looks like. A prayer of a righteous man, James says, is powerful and effective. This is a beautiful example of that kind of prayer. One that is rooted in God's character. One that is rooted in God's word. One that is rooted in his promises and in the glory of God. And I was so challenged by that. Because honestly, most of my prayers are rooted in me. And what I think I need. And this really challenged me to think about my posture in prayer and the content of my prayers. This is a beautiful prayer of a righteous man. And God's response to his prayer is one of grace. Remember and do not forget your unfaithfulness, your unrighteousness is an opportunity to remember and do not forget God's grace. This is why it's so important to remember our sin. Not in this kind of a beat yourself up, groveling kind of way. 
That's narcissistic. That's not helpful at all. But in a way that will lead us to wonder at God's grace. For God's grace is magnified against the backdrop of our unfaithfulness. And everything that comes after this, everything in chapter 10, 1 through 10, or 1 through 11, is evidence of a good and gracious God. Let's take a quick look at that. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, At that time, what time? At that time, at the mountain of Horeb, when God was about to destroy them, and Moses, face down, pleaded with God for mercy. At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and I came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. Hold on just a second. Did not the Lord say, I am going to destroy these people? What happened to leave me alone? What happened to, I'm going to destroy them and make a new people? Is God changing his mind? That's not what we're called to take from this passage. This is the opportunity that we have to use our good Bible study skills and use Scripture to interpret Scripture. What does Scripture teach us about the character of God? He is unchanging. He's an unchanging God. He knows the beginning from the end. And therefore, God knew when he said to Moses, leave me alone, how this story was going to end. So God cannot change his mind in the way that we change our mind. What we're seeing is God relenting, but it's an intentional display of his wrath so that we could see what grace looks like. He relents so that we can see this grace. He's intentionally revealing himself to Moses, to his people, and to us so that we might know him and ourselves more clearly. He does that by revealing their sinfulness and by revealing that their unrighteousness demands judgment. But in relenting, what we see is not that he changed his mind, but that he is the God of grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, There is not, no more glorious word than the word grace. Grace, this great word that you find so constantly in the scriptures, is the goodness or the love of God towards those who do not in any way deserve it. It is the unmerited goodness or love of God towards those who have forfeited every claim upon him and his love and who deserve judgment and condemnation. This is what grace is. 
And what we're seeing on that mountain is the Old Testament shadow of the gospel. An Old Testament shadow of the gospel. God, through Moses, preaching the gospel to the people, exposing their sin, humbling them, so that they would turn to him in repentance and find forgiveness and find, instead of the judgment that they have coming to them, they find the grace of God. So the covenant, we saw God rewrote stones, the stone tablets, with the same covenant. God renews the covenant, which had been shattered. He makes it new. Same covenant, new tablets. This is grace. Then he tells Moses to put the covenant in the ark. And what is the ark of the covenant? Well, it's the house for the tablets of stone. But the ark was what was kept in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. It is the, it's the place where God's presence would dwell amongst the people. So the ark of the covenant was the presence of God in their midst, at the center of this people. It was the place where atonement was made every year for the sins of the people. It was the place of the mercy seat. The ark of the covenant itself is God's grace to his people. In verses 6 through 9 of chapter 10, we have a parenthetical insert, which brings us briefly from the past into the present before jumping back to the past again. And I think there's something to to see, some grace to see in this. Because in verses 6 through 9, we're told that the people of Israel journeyed from this place to that place, and then they journeyed again from this place to that place. We're told that Aaron dies, but his son Eliezer takes the place of him and is the high priest. We're told that God established the tribe of Levi, Levi as priests for the people. So the people, the, the children of Israel, their very presence, this is the second generation, their very personhood, the fact that they are traveling from this location to that location is evidence of God's grace. Because if God had destroyed their parents, where would these people be? They themselves were trophies of God's grace. All they had to do was look at each other and they could see God's grace. And even as we look at Aaron's death, testifying to the truthfulness of God's word to Adam in the garden, that the wages of sin is death, that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Every single time the Bible speaks of somebody dying, we are being given a testimony that God's word is true and faithful. We see God's grace in in him establishing Eleazar, his son, ministering as a high priest in his place. And we see God's grace in establishing the tribe of Levi to minister and stand before the Lord. The priests were important to the people of God because the priests were the ones that represented the people to God and represented God to the people. They were the ones making sacrifices on behalf of the people in order that they might be in right relationship with God. The establishment of the priesthood is evidence of God's grace for his people. And let's look at verse 10 and 11 for our final look at grace. (coughs) I myself, Moses back speaking, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. Moses, we see God's provision of grace in Moses standing in the gap between the people and God's wrath. 
His intercession for his people was God's grace. The Lord, verse 11 says, And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So Moses is back on the mountain, and he, he, he reminds them of his intercession, and he had been praying for them, and how God's grace came down and, and, and was poured out on the people. These are but shadows. These evidences of God's grace towards Israel are shadows of something greater that God was doing, the greater plan for grace that he was bringing about through this people of Israel. And on that mountain, as God said to Moses, arise and go on your journey at the head of the people, there is the backstory behind that sentence. On the mountain in Exodus, when, when this event happened, and Moses was told to go, to leave the mountain, this is the moment, if you recall in, in the history of Israel in the Exodus, where Moses pleaded with God to show him his glory. He says, show me your glory. And the Lord said to him, I will show you part of my glory. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will walk before you, and you can see my back. But you can't see my face, because nobody can see my face and live. And so that's what he did. The Lord God passes before Moses, shows him partial, like a veiled piece, of part of his glory. And, but yet Moses never saw the full glory of God until several thousand years later when Moses was on another mountain. And on that mountain, he came face to face with the glory of God in the person of Jesus. Moses looked into the face of Jesus, and when he did so, he discovered that grace was not a thing, but a person. Jesus, the Messiah. All of these shadows that we see in Deuteronomy 10 of the grace of God are found fully in Jesus. He is the true and better Moses who stood in the gap between God's wrath and sinners deserving of that wrath. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He, Jesus, is the true and better Ark of the Covenant. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him is the fulfillment of the law. In him is the mercy seat. And in him is full atonement for sins. He is our true and better priest. And every priest, Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. 
He is the great high priest. And he is the sacrifice for sins. All those sacrifices that came before, they were God's grace to his people, but they were waiting for a time when Jesus would come to make that final sacrifice, the one who would actually take care of sins. His single offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He who perfectly kept the law was crushed for our unrighteousness. And when we see our sins, and see his perfect sacrifice, receive that, live in that, and are filled with wonder in that, that's when grace begins to make its effect in our lives because it is grace that we see in Jesus that is what changes us. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word that exposes to us our need for your grace. Thank you for diagnosing us rightly. And thank you for being the very thing that offers healing for our sin. I pray that we would receive your grace, that we would walk in your grace, that we would be changed by your grace. And I pray this in your, the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.